Jesus, especially Mondays, right? I, I love this. I love SUM ever since being a student. It was, it's just been one of my favorite days of the week because I get to focus on things I love so much, which is um, for me now teaching, but as a student, just sitting and hearing the Word of God and, and having my mind and my spirit edified uh, morning till evening. It's, it's wonderful. So we're going to learn about the Holy Trinity in the Worldview series. This is one of our main presuppositions based on our axiom of God's Word. So let's welcome up our pastor and visionary leader, Joe Wyrostek. All right, let's open up our Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Awesome time of worship. Thank you guys for that. I really appreciate that, Julian. That was really special for me because uh, I just... Loved your heart in that. Thank you. Thank you, Vinny, as well. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the, in the sky and over the livestock and all wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God made mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So right here, chapter 1 of our book, this is not the New Testament. This is the Old Testament. We see a plurality. We cannot read the Muslim understanding of the majestic plural into this. And the reason why I keep saying that is because that's what the Muslim will say, and that's the second largest religion in the world. So they're going to read this as they read their book, when, when uh, Allah is speaking in us as we. But that is a different culture of a different time that used their words differently. There were no Jewish people at that time that thought that this majestic plural was just like me saying, welcome to our home or something like that. It is very clear that God is multipersonal here. One of the ways we know as we go deeper now into this is that the word God used there is Elohim. We do not want to take it too far as some have tried to develop the word Elohim to always mean triune or always mean multipersonal, but we do need to be mindful of this that the word Elohim is plural. It stands either for gods or God. And so when God is using Elohim through Moses writing this, there is a reason. I do believe that it is there to speak in the plurality. He is not using the word El, which would be singular. He is using the plural firm form of El, which is Elohim. Once again, we don't take that so far to think every time we see this, it always has to remain the Trinity, but we do need to be mindful of the usage there in the plural. The Jews were very much aware of that. Where that would not be in other words, this is a plural word for God. Now, why is it not God's, the God said? Because it's being used singularly, singularly God is speaking, but then when he says us, he's letting you know he's speaking to multi-persons. So there isn't more than one God. That's the trick here. It's not the gods said, and that's what Mormonism believes, the counsel of the gods, and they'll play off that Elohim. That's not what's being said here. It's very clear, like when you look to the Septuagint, let me go to the Septuagint in Genesis chapter 1. It says theos. It makes sure to keep it in the singular, but 
It's a compounded word. That's why it fits perfectly with the let us. So right there we have an understanding of compound unity, complex unity, tri-unity, whatever one of those words you prefer. Now what I'm about ready to do, and I want to invite you guys on this uh, glorious journey, I'm going to go into my weakness, okay? So my weakness is Old Testament Jewish studies, I can read the Old Testament Bible and get a lot of goodies out of it. But the moment you start asking me, what do Jews believe, what did Jews believe at that time? And then specifically at the time of Jesus, what we would call Second Temple Judaism. The first temple was with Solomon. It was destroyed in the Babylonian captivity and then rebuilt with uh, Nehemiah, Ezra, and, and, the, and those books of the Bible. And that second temple became better known as uh, King Herod's temple as, as the Herod kings came along and added more things to it and renovated it. That time is the time of Jesus. Those Jews had certain beliefs. That is my weakness. It is very uh, good to know these things because these are the Jewish people of Jesus' day. These are the Jews that the disciples are writing to. So, for example, when we look at the word logos in John's gospel, if we understand that at that time there was a contemporary of Jesus, a Jewish philosopher named Philo, we can see that he was using the word logos in the same kinds of ways that the Greeks were, but applying it to Judaism. Now, why is that important? Because that's the milieu, as the, the historians would say, that is the setting, that is the narrative of our Bible. So Philo lived from 30 B.C. to 50 A.D., so he's around during the time of Jesus and the apostles. He had a way of viewing the Logos, how he attributed the Logos to God. Now, I'm not going to get into that so much right now, but I want you to be aware that these concepts in Judaism were around at that time. Another idea that I want to present to you that is going to be somewhat of my weakness today, is Dr. Michael Brown, who wrote the number one best books on Judaism and helping them see Christianity in Judaism, wrote the four-volume series here, Answering Jewish Objections. I'll give you a picture of the cover. That's what it looks like. This is volume two. He wrote four volumes. Check and make sure it's four volumes. Five. Okay, thank you. I'm glad I stopped to correct myself. So that's what it looks like. Here's the way he comes at it, and Philo will come back up here. But here's the way he looks at it. The Jewish people lived with these mysteries. There's no way around it. For the Muslim to come around now and go, hey, we're more like the Jews than we are like the Christians because we don't believe in a trinity. We believe in a Unitarian God just like the Jews. They undermine all that was happening in Judaism, especially during the time of Jesus and the apostles, which was coming up with philosophies and doctrines to help explain all of the conundrums the Jewish Bible was creating. And what Michael Brown does is say, to a contemporary Jew, just imagine if I didn't come to you with Jesus right now and all of Christianity and these things you think about when you think of Christianity. Most Jews don't even know that Jesus was Jewish or all the New Testament writers were Jewish, so they're sometimes that far disconnected in our modern age. But he says, let me just 
Take what you guys think about as you look to your ancestors of the first century and see if Jesus, the one we would call Yeshua, fits these philosophies that they had at that time, these expectations, like the Essenes, you know, those who were around the time of the Dead Sea Scrolls and so forth. Let's see if Philo would have accepted this if he would have been presented it, and we don't know necessarily if he was and why his reasons were if he did reject it, but was this not the answer to their philosophies, to their questions, to their worldview? Because if you can understand the Jewish Bible, which is the biggest part of our Bible, you'll understand the New Testament. Because when Jesus is getting baptized, as I showed you guys last week in the sermon, uh, yesterday in the sermon, that was not a surprise to them, though it was like unfathomable in that one sense, like how this would actually work out. It was actually prophesied to them. And it was going right over their head because they weren't connecting the dots. Now, we shouldn't look down on them, but we should learn from them. And obviously other Jewish people did accept Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea accepted Jesus. Nicodemus probably accepted Jesus. Others we know in the book of Acts, many from the priesthood, many from the synagogues, the leaders accepted Jesus. And so Michael Brown gives us this kind of way to look at it like, let's just look at it this way from your history and see if you can see why the Trinity is an answer to these, to these questions or these conundrums that you had. But let me just show you a few of the conundrums, and then we'll go into some of the answers. Because if you don't know the issues that they were dealing with, then you won't understand how the Trinity is actually the revelation to everything that was concealed in mystery. So let's go to this passage that I shared in the second service, not in the first service. Go to Exodus chapter uh, 33, verse, Exodus chapter 33, verse 20. And we'll see at one of the, like, full-on contradictions of the, the Old Testament Bible here, written by Moses. Look at Exodus chapter 33, verse 20, and then get ready to go to Exodus chapter 33, verse 11. There's only going to be a nine-verse nine difference here. Now look at verse 20. It says, we'll start here. But he said, you cannot see my face... For no one may see my face and live. That's God talking to Moses there in the cleft of the rock. That experience. Now look at Exodus chapter 33 verse 11. Just nine verses prior, Moses is writing the first five books of the Bible. Now how did he get that information? Partly from revelation and partly from tradition. But we know entirely the information is filtered through the revelation. But what I'm trying to say is they may have known this and handed this down throughout their generations because they knew their, their people, who they were in, 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 in captivity in Egypt. So we know it's being fully inspired and filtered by the Lord, but... What is going on here in verse 11? Watch this. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. So we know that's Moses writing this. Moses says, I speak to God face to face. But just a few verses later, just in the same exact chapter, Moses is asking God for a new encounter with him, an encounter like one he's never had before, and he starts off by saying, show me your glory, and then he says, I'll pass in front of you, but you cannot see my face and live. Now, do you understand why the Jewish people had a conundrum? Now, let me just say this, because if someone, because 
the three main monotheistic religions are Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. So I got to keep touching base this whole time. Just like you guys remember me when I was talking about the three main views of the the John 1-1 is the Trinitarian view, the Sabellian view, and then the Aryan Jehovah Witness view. Mormons are just off in la-la land. They have no place really to go. They, they have to plead to another book and other revelations, you know, because it's just not taught. It's obviously not taught in the scriptures. But just to show you, like in John 1-1, it's either you see it as the Trinity three separate persons, and we see the distinction there, the Father facing the Son, so they can't be the same person. So you either see it there as a trinity, or you try to force, as a Sabellianist does, that the Father and the Son are the exact same person, but that does away with the prostantheon and the word was with God. Or you see it as an Arian, and you insert the word A there to say he was a God, and now you've become a polytheist. Jesus is now a separate created God, which we disproved in Isaiah 43.10. And also in John 1.18, it shows us exactly who it is. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God is that the Father's right hand has made him known, right? So we know it's the Trinitarian explanation. Well, now we come into the same understanding of what's going on in Exodus. You're either going to see it as the Trinity. You're either going to see it as the Trinity because Sabellian can't fit here. Sabellian is because they're two separate persons. They're not, it's not like Joe is a father and then Joe is a son because he's literally saying one place you talk to me face to face and another place you can't see me. So it cannot be the same person. Sabellianism is gone. It cannot be Jehovah Witnesses. This is not a lesser God. This is literally Yahweh talking. The, the Lord, Yahweh. Here is the word uh, right there. If I can get it to show up. There we go. Yahweh. So this is not a, because they always try to say the Father's Yahweh, Jesus is not Yahweh. Yahweh is the one talking in both places. Yahweh is here saying, you can't see my face. And then in verse 11, it's saying that uh, he would talk to him face to face here. Let's go back up to verse 11. Oh, I scrolled down here. Let's go up again. Verse 11, the Lord. Yahweh would speak to him. Does everybody get that? So there's, there's no way around this now. So now to, to, to differentiate, we're monotheist. Now we're going to either see this the way Islam sees it, the way Judaism sees it, or the way historic Christianity sees it. Are you guys tracking with me? Okay. Now what is Islam going to say? Islam is going to say, we don't have to deal with that contradiction. Those scriptures have been changed, and there's nothing we need to pay attention to. So we don't even need to get down with this contradiction here because the, the Bible's already contradicting itself in multiple places. This, this to them would be an evidence that the Bible has been uh, corrupted. But now look at this right here. Let's go to the Quranic dilemma. And this is made popular by people like Dr. David Wood and Sam Shimon and others. If Christians have the Word of God, the Quran is false because our scriptures contradict the Word of the Quran. So if Christians truly have the word of God, the Quran is false because our scriptures say whatever he's talking about is totally false. Starting with Galatians, if you hear from an angel a different gospel other than the one that we preach, and how many know the heart of the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for our sins, and Muhammad didn't believe in that, you got a totally false revelation now. But hold on. If the Christians do not have the word of God, as some Muslims now try to say, it's been corrupted from the Injil, the Gospel of Jesus, or the Tanakh, the first five books of the Bible, also known as the Torah. If we don't have that, guess what? The Quran is also false because the Quran claims that in Muhammad's day, in the 6th and 7th century, the Injil and the Quran, uh, the uh, Injil and the Tanakh, was around with the people of the book, Al Kitab. And that's not according to me, that's according to Surah chapter 3, verses 3 through 4. 
So let's just see this as we go on in the, uh, the scriptures here of the Quran so you can understand more clearly. Look at Surah 29, 46. It says, and do not argue with the people of the scripture, or in Arabic, Al-Kitab, the people of the book. Don't argue with them except in a way that is best, except for those who commit injustice among them. So you are not supposed to argue with us in a bad way. That's literally what the Quran says. You're not supposed to meet a Jew or a Christian and start arguing with them in a bad way. You're supposed to do it in a way that's just. So what are you supposed to say to the Jew and to the Christian when you meet them? We believe in that which has been revealed to us and revealed to you. Do you see? That's what Muhammad said, Allah said. And our God and your God is one, and we are Muslims in submission to him. So modern Muslim translations who insert what the understanding is, like how we do with the Amplified. The Mushakan translation says, and do not argue with the people of the scriptures, Jews or Christians, unless it be a way that is better with good words in a good manner, inviting them to Islamic monotheism in his verses, except with such of them as do wrong, say to them, we believe in what has been revealed to us and revealed to you. Now notice that surah that I was mentioning before, that it, that it literally affirms our books by name. It doesn't just say vaguely. Look at what it says in surah 3, verses 3 through 4 of the Quran. He has sent down upon you, O Muhammad, the book in truth, talking about the Quran, confirming what was before it, and he revealed the Torah and the gospel. So it is very clear that Muhammad in his day, along with the Muslims of his day, believed that the Quran was confirming the first five books of the Old Testament and the gospels of Jesus Christ at that time. Now, we have manuscripts from the time of the Quran, so there can be no confusion you can't say it was corrupted before then, and then after that, uh, oh, it was pure before that, and then after that, it was corrupted. We have the documents in museums of what they have. So let's continue on. It says, before he revealed the Torah and the gospel, before as guidance for the people, and he revealed the Quran. Indeed, those who disbelieve in the verses of Allah will have a severe punishment, and Allah is exalted in might, the owner of retribution. Do you see how clearly they have to affirm our books? Now, just to make it even more clear, whenever God speaks, people cannot change his words according to the Quran. Now, we know that's in the Bible, but that's according to the Quran as well. Surah 1827 says, And recite, O Muhammad, what has been revealed to you of the book of your Lord. There is no changer of his words, and you will never find in another other, you will never, will you find in other than him a refuge. So no one can change his words. Did he not just say his words are in the Torah, in the Injil? And then what does he say in the Quran in chapter 15, verse 19? We have revealed the dakar, the reminder there in, in Arabic, and will preserve it. Now, which dakar do you think he's referring to? Is it just the Quran? No, the reminder, the, the dakar is mentioned as the Injil and Torah in these other passages. 21, 48, 21, 7, 40, 53 through 54. So did Muhammad have 
access to the th- these things, even though he was illiterate. Yes, he knew they were around. He's talking about them. If he could have read, he, uh, he could have read their documents. He knew the Jews were reading them. He knew the Christians were reading them. So he wasn't making an argument to them based against their text. He wasn't saying, your text is bad, my text is good, so come follow me. What he was saying is, you stopped obeying the things of your text, and now I'm here to correct those things, starting with the people who speak Arabic. So his word was for the Arabic-speaking people. That's what he believed the Quran was there for. In Surah 7, 157, it says, Those who follow the messenger, the unlettered prophet, whom they find written in what they have of the Torah and of the gospel, who enjoins upon them what is right and forbids them what is wrong and makes lawful for them the good things and prohibits to them the evil and relieves them of their burden and the shackles which are upon them. The prophecies... Uh, the promise of prophecies come to Muhammad in his day that the Gospels that the Jews and Christians have and the Torah that the Jewish people have actually speak about him. So now they can't have their cake and eat it too. If our scriptures are corrupted, why is Allah telling you to find yourself prophesied in our scriptures? He would have told you they're corrupt. You won't find yourself there. So now they can't have both. If the Quran is right, the Bible is right. And then the Bible says the Quran is wrong. If the Quran is wrong and the Bible has been corrupted, then the Quran is wrong because the Quran tells you the Bible hasn't been corrupted. Did I say that the right way? Did I twist it back and forth backwards? Let me just say it again so I don't confuse myself because it's having to look at it from both ways. Did I say it right? Okay, let me just repeat it how I have written down so I don't forget for myself. If Christians have the word of God, the Quran is false because our scriptures just prove and contradict the Quran. If Christians don't have the word of God, the Quran is false because the Quran says we do. Does everybody get that? Okay, so now, can we take the modern-day Muslim solution to this problem? No. You have a faulty foundation. You are contradicting yourself. We can't go to you to try to understand what was happening with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which they claim their prophets are a part of, and they believe that's the same God. That's what they believe. But we can't go to you. You're contradicting yourself. You're actually worshiping a false God from that time period and incorporating their false beliefs of Mecca and Ramadan and all these things. So we can't go to you. Now who are we left with? Jews and Christians. We're left with Jews and Christians. So now we go to our Bible and we say to the Jew, look at Matthew. And let's just go there for a reminder. Let's go to Matthew chapter 3. What do we see in Matthew chapter 3? We see the baptism of Jesus. We see starting in verse 13 that he's going to get baptized. And now in verse 16, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went out of the water. At that, at that moment, heaven was open. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. Boom. In the discussion, Jewish people, we now have the revelation. What no one had seen before, what no one had understood before, now is here. Jesus the Messiah fulfills all of those prophecies that were written about the Messiah. We show them in 58, Psalm 22, about the cross, taking on the sins of the people, etc. And then we show at the end of his life, how does he now refer to the name? 
How does he now refer to the name of God, the Yahweh, the one God that the Bible speaks clearly about in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, which is the prayer of the Jewish people three times a day. This is how they start their prayer. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Yahweh is one. You can also go to Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. Who should I say sent me? Moses is asking God. Say that I am that I am has sent you. Tell this to the children of Israel. And then God said moreover unto Moses, Thou shalt say unto the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, Yahweh Elohim. That is the, that is the compounded word here. That is what we're learning that God is. He is Yahweh, the great and mighty God. There you see the Elohim, and there you see the Yahweh based off of here, the I am that I am. Jesus in Matthew chapter 28 is very clear. God's name has not changed. He said his name will not change in other places. His name does not change. And now he reveals who he is. They had experienced him. They had been talking to Jesus and learning all of these things. And now at the end, he says, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And so is Jesus Lord? Yes, Jesus is Lord. When you go to the scriptures, let's say we go to Philippians chapter 2, right there towards the end, when it talks about Jesus coming in the flesh, and it says, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and everyone will bow down before him, and every knee will bow. Just Google that passage for me. I know it's somewhere in Isaiah. Every knee will bow before him, so you can get there first. That is directly from Isaiah. Every knee will bow, Isaiah. That is Isaiah chapter 45, verse 23. Look at Isaiah 45, verse 23. It says, I solemnly make this oath, what I say is true, surely every knee will bow to me, every tongue will solemnly affirm. Who is speaking in Isaiah 45, 23? It says it right here, will I, the Lord, etc., and then right up here at the very beginning, what Lord is it? Is it the Lord of um, Another nation? No. Go all the way up to the top, and it tells you who the Lord is. It is the very Lord that's been speaking to him. This is what the Lord says to his chosen one, etc. There you see, again, this is Yahweh. And I have, I'm in a, um, NET. I can't go. So let me go Isaiah 45 right here, and it's going to mess up all those. You know what? Let me do it here. Isaiah 45, just so you could see. Because somebody may say, oh, well, it's, there's many different kinds of lords. No, this is what the Lord says. What word is there in the Hebrew? That is Yahweh. That is Yahweh. He is talking here. He is the one talking all the way down to verse 13. Look at him. Keep going. I am the Lord. There is no other besides me. Apart from me, there is no God. He makes it so clear in verse 5. He says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Does everybody get what he's saying there? Now you go on down here. What does he say in verse 13? Or rather, what is it? Verse, uh, what verse is it? 3? Did I already skip it? That every knee is going to bow? 23, sorry, yeah, 23. So he keeps going, for the Lord says he created the heavens. He is God. He did not create it empty. Look, he says again in verse 18, I am the Lord, there is no other. How much more clear could it be? And then now, thank you, verse 23. Let's just even go to verse 21. Was it, I, was it not I, the Lord? Apart from me, there is no God. Apart from me, uh, there is... Uh, 
and there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and Savior. There is none but me. How many times does he say it? Just in Isaiah 45. Now what does he say in verse 22? Turn to me and be saved, all ye ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. That's like the fourth time he said it. By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity, a word that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow. By me every tongue will swear. They will say of me in the Lord alone our deliverance and strength. But what does the Bible say in Philippians chapter 2? Who are we bowing down to in Philippians chapter 2 and confessing his name? Who is that? Jesus. It is so clear. So every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord, that Jesus Christ is Yahweh. So we see Jesus is Yahweh. There's not many Yahwehs. There's one Yahweh. How do I know? That that Greek word kurios refers to the Hebrew word Yahweh because of what Isaiah 55 says. Now, go back to, uh, let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Look at what it says. It says, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. It's so obvious. When one turns to Yahweh, the veil is removed. Though they're using the Greek language, we know who they're talking about. Now listen to what it says. Now the Lord is the Spirit. Now Yahweh is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is present, there is freedom. So now what do we see clearly in Jesus' teachings and Jesus' experience that he gives us, that there is one God under that one name of Yahweh who is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay. Now, amen. Let's go now to the Jewish people of today. We're going to use the same arguments that the New Testament writers used, and we're going to apply them to Jesus, and we're going to show the Jewish people they cannot solve their own riddles Islam is no longer an issue. We're only stuck with Judaism now. All the other nations have the pagan gods. We've already disproved that. This is, this is right now. Whether or not Jesus is who he said he is, are the Jews still waiting? Now, there's a million different ways we could go on this discussion, but uh, go in this discussion, but because it was related to the Trinity yesterday, I really want you guys to see this, and it's so encouraging to me that uh, Michael Brown wrote these things, and so I, I'm going to read a lot from him, like a class today, because there's no way I can pretend to know any of this stuff, okay? It's not like I'm going to pretend to have this stuff down. So what he asked us to do is to speak to the Jew and say, as I was saying before, let's kind of remove the baggage you think of Christianity with off the table, and let's just talk Judaism's principles to what we believe Jesus did and we can show in the Scripture. Let's leave out all misunderstandings. Let's leave out all the history of the Inquisitions because Catholics were very mean to Jewish people. They would try to force them to convert, prove their conversion by eating pork in front of them. If not, they would burn them at the stakes. Uh, Jewish people only recently have started to love Christians again, and that's because of evangelical Christians. And we can even show that during uh, World War II, the Pope was friends with Hitler and uh, seemed to have wanted them to win more than he wanted the others to win. And uh, Mussolini, Mussolini, a dictator, was in Italy. So who knows how deep that conspiracy goes, but let's just leave it alone for right now and just say we're going to talk Jewish foundation, Jewish worldview to Christian worldview, right? This is what Michael Brown's saying we should do. So he says, let's answer some questions, my fellow Jew. The Hebrew Bible states that no one can see God 
And yet at times, this says that people saw him. Who was it that they saw? So we show that in Exodus chapter 33. Where's another place we can show that? We can show that in Genesis chapter 18. Now, I went to a Jewish website, and they try to say that three angels appeared to Abraham. But look at what it says. The Lord appeared to him in the plains of Mamre. It doesn't say angels there. It says the Lord appeared to him. Now, when he looks up, he saw three men. So, yes, there's three men, but one of them has to be the Lord because the prior verse said the Lord appeared to him. Now, how do we know that two of them are angels? You go right down to the end of the account here, and what does it say? It says that when the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked them, walked along with them to see them on the way. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about ready to do, right? So he walks with them. Now go down, and he talks with the Lord, and we don't really know what happens to the other two. So we know one of the three is the Lord, according to the Scripture, and then he talks to the Lord. We don't see what happens to the two. What happens to the two? Look at chapter 19. The two angels arrived at Sodom. Are we playing tricks with the Scriptures? No, there are no tricks with the Scriptures. It says the Lord appeared to him in Genesis chapter 18. And then later on it says he talks to the Lord now privately. He hangs out with the Lord. And then in verse 19 it tells us what happened to the other two. They're there at Sodom now. My friends, it's so simple. So we ask the Jewish person, what is going on here? You can't say there are three angels, and we're not like the, um, the Muslims saying the Scriptures are corrupted, so we both got to do something with this. And are we the first ones to have to deal with it? No. Second Temple Jews, like Philo and others, had solutions. Let's get to some of their solutions in just a moment. The Hebrew Bible speaks, here's the other question we want to ask them. The Hebrew Bible speaks of God occasionally manifesting himself on earth, apparently in human form. Yet as God, he sits enthroned in the highest heavens. How can both of these things be true? And we show you right there. Where's another place he appears in human form? Go ahead. And what's that? What is that occasion? Exactly. That was the one I was going to. Well done, scholar and gentleman TJ there. Jacob wrestles with the Lord. He wrestles with God. Let's just go there and take a look at it. Is it as clear as it was in Genesis 18 and 19? I believe it is. Look at Genesis chapter 32. So here Jacob also went on his way. The angels of God met him. And this is the camp of God. Now, What happens that night as he spends the night there? Let's see what happens. Verse 22. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives and family servants and 11 sons and did these things. So Jacob was left alone, um, and he wrestled with, okay, let's go back up here. After he had sent along, so Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him. That's what I want to see. A man wrestled with him till daybreak, and then he breaks his hip. He takes his hip out of socket. The man that was struggling with him, he says, your name will no longer be called Jacob but Israel because you have struggled with who? You have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Now, somebody may say, I'm still not sure if that was really God. Maybe that was an angel, et cetera. But let's keep going. Please tell me your name. 
But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed them there. So he moves on. He doesn't give them, him the revelation that he gives Moses. That was meant for a certain time. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. No way around it. Now does it get even more clear? Yes, because then when he finally meets his estranged brother Esau, he begins to weep as he sees him. And now look at what he says to Esau. He says, please take these gifts. If I have found favor in your eyes, Genesis 33.10, accept this gift from me. For to see your face is like seeing the face of God. Doesn't that sound just like Daniel? Why did Jesus get the nickname the Son of Man? That doesn't describe his humanity. That describes what he looked like. And so now Jacob wrestles with God and sees his enemy and says, Dude, you look just like him. You look just like him. Now, is that what the Scripture teaches in other places in Genesis? Yes, because after it says we're created in his image, go to Genesis chapter 5. It's reiterated that the us there couldn't have been angels. Like God said, let us angels make man in our image. No, because he says it again in Genesis chapter 5. When God created mankind, he made them in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them. There's that complex unity. There's that plurality of persons. And he named them mankind when they were created. And just so we understand how we're in his likeness, in verse 3 it says, when Adam lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness and in his own image. How much more clear could it be? So that's why Dr. Michael Brown is asking us or, or um, encouraging us to ask the Jews, what do you do with this? The first question is, it says no one can see him in Exodus, and yet in that same verse, uh, Moses is seeing God face to face. Other times it says nobody can see him, and yet he looks like a man. He looks like a man wrestling with Jacob. He looks like a man in Daniel. Now we go on to the Spirit. So this is really talking about the Son. Now he goes on to the Spirit, and he says, the Hebrew, sometime, the Hebrew Bible sometimes describes the Holy Spirit as a personal being and not just as an impersonal force. Is the Holy Spirit merely a synonym for God, or does the term describe part of his very nature, his own spirit? So is, is this just trying to say that God can do things by a spirit, and that's how he kind of shows up in power? Or is it, you know, actually a person called the spirit that is distinguished from the other persons that we may know as the Father or the Son or, or other persons in God's nature? So we go to the book of Genesis, and what do we see? We see in the book of Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning God created heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now, is that confirmed that the Spirit of God plays a vital role in our lives? Absolutely. When we go to the book of Job, and Job is describing the Holy Spirit's role, let's go to the creation account here. Job chapter 33, verse 4 says, The Spirit of God has made me. So he actually makes things. And that goes right along with what we're learning in the Scriptures. The Spirit of God is there waiting to do the things that are commanded. 
And then it says, the breath of the Almighty gives me life. And so we believe that's what Jesus breathed upon us. So here are these things that are coming up that they don't have answers for. And I'm going to try to show you what some of their answers are. But they don't come anywhere close to the revelation of the Trinity. Now, I didn't get a chance to show this yesterday. But let's keep going to Genesis chapter 3. After the fall, God speaks to the fellow persons of the Trinity and says something about them and how mankind has now changed because of eating the fruit. Look at how God speaks. Look at chapter 3, verse 22. The Lord God said, man, the man, or mankind, that's the plural form there. Adam is also a name, a name of a person and the name of the plurality of persons. That's why we say God can also refer to the person of the Father and the plurality of the persons of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Lord can refer to the Father and the persons of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit because that's the same way he did with man. Man is Adam, and also mankind is Adam. Does everybody get that? So the Lord says the man or mankind has now become like one of us. One of us knowing good and evil. Could he be speaking to angels? Of course not, because we were not made in the image of angels. Did angels get dominion over the earth? Did, did angels have the choice to choose between good and evil and after making a bad choice get redemption? No. We are unique to God because we're made in his image. We are not like angels in those different kinds of ways. Angels don't have flesh, etc. And so we are made like us, the plurality of God, because we're multiple persons ruling upon a physical earth like multiple persons of God rule in the heavens. And so this cannot refer to angels. The us is the triune God speaking. Man has become like us. So man now can choose. And we know that this uh, doesn't mean that God chooses evil ever, but God has the knowledge of evil. That's where we would say God has the knowledge of evil. And he permitted it, but he did not um, want it to be chosen, but he allowed it to be chosen. So we can always back up our free will defense to God gave us the choice, but then some people will say, well, how do we ever have a choice if everything comes from God? Well, God gave us the choice to not have him, and not, not having him is evil, and I'm okay with it. I rest my case there. The Calvinist says that God actually creates the evil and destined people to do the evil. We don't go that far. We say that God can allow something he knows about to be done by others and he himself not be guilty of doing that very thing. So we see the Spirit of God is, is relevant. He is not just a force. He's a person. He's part of the us there. And then we go on here to um, this last question that, that Dr. Brown asks us to pose. He then says, the Hebrew Bible makes reference to God's word. The Spirit of the Lord came upon me and said, you know, the prophets are always talking like this, as a concrete entity worthy of praise, sent on divine missions, and active in the world. What is meant by this word? If you take a good look at the next objection, you'll learn what the rabbis had to say about the word of the Lord in the Aramaic Memra. And we're going to talk about the Memra and the Logos here in just a moment in the Jewish for a Second Temple Judaism. But let's just go here. There are many places where the scriptures talk about God sending his word. God sent his word. God sent his word. Psalm 107. Look at Psalm 107. And what was it? Verse 17, verse 20. 
talking about God here, they cried to the Lord in their distress. He saved them in their troubles. He saved them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them. So the word actually healed them. It was the word that healed them. And we could go on and talk about what the promises uh, the prophets are saying when they eat the word, they eat the scroll. They're interacting with this word that has power and authority. The spoken word is how they hear it, but it's coming from the source, the greater word. As we talked about before, there is the written word and there is the person of the word. And so here we see that the word is not just now something being spoken as in syllables. It actually seems like he sends a personal force there called the word. Now, did the Jewish people understand these things? Absolutely. They absolutely understood these problems. So now guess what they began to do? They began to create all kinds of beliefs and worldviews, uh, presuppositions and propositions in their worldview to support what would seem to be like contradictions. What's one of the things that they did? Let's look here. The rabbi spoke so much about the Shekinah, or the, how would you say Shekinah? Shekinah, but the, the Hebrew pronunciation. Shekinah, I think that's how you pronounce it with the Hebrew, the Shekinah. But thank you for the English version, the Shekinah. The Shekinah, the divine presence, corresponding also to the feminine, the motherly aspects of God. They actually began to give feminine attributes to the Spirit, and they began to describe the Shekinah when they went into exile, and that the Shekinah was suffering with her children. The presence of God was actually the feminine presence of God among them suffering like a mother does for their children. That's what he notes that the rabbis and people began to teach. How about this? According to Rabbi Akiva, he went as far as saying according to the scriptures when God redeemed his people that he was actually redeeming himself. Some Hasidic Jews joining the concept of the Shekinah, the Shekinah with the mystical concept of the she Shefrot took this one step further. They believed and still believe that the purpose of the per performance of the mitzvot, the commands, is to help the, the doesn't say Shekinah, to unite with the teraphet, the shafari, the shafara of the glory or beauty, the male principle. So there had to be a male and female uniting here. The sins of Israel had hindered this union from basically the power of the masculine force of God with the female force of God, prevented that reunification, and it was necessary. It was a prerequisite for the coming of God's kingdom, for the shekinah, the presence of God that was actually here with us, which was separated now from the masculine power of God in heaven, that now it had to be reunited. And that was the purpose of all things coming together. Now, the Memra is actually known as the word in Aramaic. Now, what is the, uh, er what is the purpose of the Aramaic? The Aramaic is what they learned as they were in exile under the different leaders. I believe they learned it, what, from the Persians? Where did the Jews learn Aramaic from? Ask that question to Google, please. So they learned Greek from the Greeks, obviously, and I believe they learned Aramaic from the, the, the Persians. And what the uh, Jewish people did during this time, just like during the Greeks, the, the, the Greek occupation of Israel, they made the Bible the Septuagint, which is the LXX, the 50 scholars who got together and took it from Hebrew to Greek, 
70, thank you, 70. The L is the 50, and the X is a 10, and another 10 is 70. So that's the, the Roman numerals. They also, during this time, wrote down their commentaries when they were under Aramaic persecution or the language of Aramaic was popular. So that language of, um, of these writings of Aramaic became to be known as the, um, what are they called? What are those things called? The Aramaic, oh, no, please do not try to help me right now. It will only make things worse. Not the Talmud, not the t Targum. Oh, you did help. You did help. <laughs> Thank you. The Targum. Thank you. So the Targums, let's look to what the Targums were. The Targums were their commentaries written down in Aramaic. And they come from the time of the first temple of Judaism. Now, I want to know where they learned Aramaic at, and it might have been from the Persians. What language did the Persians speak? What language did ancient Persians speak? I think it was Aramaic because that's where Aramaic is at in um, the book of Daniel. Old Persian, because why is Daniel speaking? Our only places of Aramaic in the Old Testament are found in the book of Daniel. So Aramaic, so Persian, so the language was called Persian, also known as this. It is written down and is also modified, which is self-evolved from the Aramaic alphabet. The Persian language... Yes, the Persian language and the Aramaic language were very similar. Let's just ask the question, why is Daniel, why is Aramaic in Daniel? And then that will tell us. That's probably what they were speaking. Why it was written in Aramaic. Oh, let's go back here. Right here, Explanations. Okay, let's go back here. I like this. Biblical Aramaic. Biblical Aramaic is the form of Aramaic that is used in the books of Daniel and Ezra. So it is also in Ezra. It should not be confused with the Aramaic paraphrase, explanation, expansions of the Hebrew scriptures, which are known as the Targum. So the Targum is outside of scripture. Okay, Old Aramaic and the Neo-Assyrian Neo Empire. There we go. And during the Babylonian exile, Aramaic became the language mostly spoken by the people and biblical he and it kind of replaced biblical Hebrew and Second Temple Judaism. Yeah, and Aramaic became the language of culture of learning. King Darius declared the imperial Aramaic to be the official language of half of his empire. And King Darius ruled the Persians. So thank you for your patience as we figured that out. There you go. So what was the purpose of the Targums? The Targums were the Aramaic commentators of the Jewish people that they developed during that time of their occupation. They went so far to try to explain what's going on with God and his spoken word and his presence being with people that they came up 
with a principle called the Memra. And the Memra in Aramaic literally means the word. Memra in Aramaic means the word. Now we know Philo will use the Greek concept of word logos, and that's where we believe John saw that and the Holy Spirit used him to connect Hebrew thought with Greek thought all together. Because remember, it's always to the Greek and to the Hebrews, to the Greek and to the Hebrew. And so since Philo took the word memra and used it as the Hebrew word logos to mean the basically the same thing, John now showed us who the logos is. Now watch, though, in the time of Jesus, how they described the Memra in their interpretations of Scripture. So imagine you have a Targum, it is interpreting, uh, interpreting, helping you understand Genesis and different books of the Bible. Let's take the example here. The Targums are of great significance of the religious life of the Jewish people at this time. Look at Genesis 1.27. God created man. In the Targum, what did it say? The word of the Lord created man. That's the Targum from Jonathan. In Genesis 6, 6-7, And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth. It repented the Lord through his word that he had made man on the earth. These are the Targums of the present-day Jews of Jesus' time and the apostles' time. They're talking about the person of the word. The Targum from Genesis 9, 12. And God said, this is the sign that I sent that I set for the covenant between me and you. What does the Targum say? And the Lord said, this is the sign that I set for the covenant between my word and you. How about Exodus? And the Lord spake all these words. Exodus 20, verse 1. And the word of the Lord spake all of these words. Do you see the significance of that? Do you see how they're inserting the word of the Lord in these places because now they're getting the point that there's more than just one thing going on here. There's more than just one thing going on. This Christian scholar, fluent in Hebrew and knowing the rabbinic sources, says this. He says, the Lord's, looking at all the evidence of the Targums, the Lord's memra will be my God. I will save them through their God, the Lord's Memra. Abraham was justified through the Memra. The Memra gave Israel the law. Moses prayed to the Memra. Israel was justified through the Memra's instrumentality. And the Memra was the one even responsible for creating the world. So when you take all the Targums together, that's who the Memra is. Do you see that? In fact, according to the Targum Neophyti, representing the important early tradition, man was created in the image of the Memra of the Lord. Considered what the Targum Pseudo-Jonathan, a Targum printed in all rabbinic Bibles, in all rabbinic Bibles, look at what it says in Deuteronomy 4.7 in the Hebrew words, what other nation is so great as to have their gods near them in the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to them? The Targum inserts these words, the Memra, the word of Yahweh sits upon his throne high and lifted up and hears our prayers whenever we pray before him and make our petitions. This is just some of the Targum's concepts of the word. Now, Philo of Alexander, remember we just mentioned him, the greatest Jewish philosopher of the day and a man who was roughly speaking as a contemporary of Jesus had much to say about the Logos. The same concept. The Memra is the Aramaic way of saying it. What does the, what does the Logos represent to Philo, this Jewish person? 
Well, here in the Oxford Dictionary of Jewish Religion, this is what they summarize Philo as saying. Although, in a sense, an aspect of the divine, the Logos often appears as a separate entity, namely a half-personal emanation of God, the concept was appropriated by Philo in order to bridge the gap between the transcendent God of Judaism and the divine principle experienced by human beings. This view of the Logos as a mediating principle between God and the material creation could link up with biblical references to the creative word of God by which the heavens were made, Psalm 33, 6, with the concept of the Memra, the Aramaic word in the Targum literature. So, so although Philo spoke of the Logos more than 1,400 times in his writings, there are a few examples that are especially important. To quote New Testament scholar Larry Hurtado, Philo calls the Logos the second God and states that the God in whose image Adam was created in Genesis 1.27 is actually the Logos which the rational part of the soul resembles. It is impossible, according to Philo, to think of anything earthly being a direct image of God himself. And Philo also calls the Logos the mediator. Think about that. He calls the Logos, Philo, he calls the Logos the firstborn, the archangel, which is the angel of the Lord, the name of God the governor and administrator of all things, stating that the divine word is the chief of God's powers. The unique revelation that John brings is that the word, also Memra or Logos, actually became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. This is John 1:14, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus came to bring God near. The Logos became flesh and blood. Isn't that wonderful? Now, we could go more into the Spirit, into the aspects of the Spirit, but once again, it's going to be Jesus who reveals to us the Father, and the Spirit, and that's why it's very important that we understand uh, John chapter 14 and 16. He says here, I love, if you love me, you'll keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. So now we know definitively by Jesus the Spirit is not feminine, he is masculine, and he is like Jesus and the Father. The word there, another Elios or Elion, A-L-L-O-S, Elion, or El- depending on what, what um, form it's being used in. And it means another of the same kind, another of the same kind. And so what we have to see is that Jesus is the revelation of the Trinity. We can't know the Trinity without Jesus. And through Jesus, we see the Father and we see the Spirit. Amen? And we answer the questions, the conundrums of the Jewish Bible. We do not do away with them like Muslims do. And we do not create second gods or these different powers or wherever they were going, a female entity called the Shekinah, the glory of God, make the Holy Spirit feminine. We can stay true to the Scriptures and see that God, when he said us, was the Father, was the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And to close it out, you can go to just any good, uh, good epistle and see this kind of teaching. 
But let's just go to 1 Corinthians to see each person of the Trinity mentioned here. It says, called to be saints. It says, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctifying Christ Jesus, called to be saints, which in every place call upon the name of our Lord, uh, call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So there we see the Father and the Son, right? Very clearly, Father and the Son. Now the Spirit is going to come just a little bit later, but I want to show you how the Spirit is brought up in uh, 1 Corinthians. All of this is talking about the gospel and how they ought to be in unity and all of these wonderful things. But now just go right here. In, sec- in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard. What has entered the heart of man, the things which God has prepared for them that love them. But God hath revealed it to us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. And that's what Jared wrote earlier, uh, read earlier today, right, at chapel. For who knows the things of man, say the spirit of man which is in him, even so the things of God knows no man but the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world but the spirit which is of God. Now, the Bible says man can't receive these things naturally, but they have to come from the spirit of God. Now go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and just see the Trinity in action here. He lists off each person in the Trinity and shows them how they work together. It says, now there are different gifts, but the same Spirit, different administrations, but the same Lord, and there are different operations, but the same God. When God is referred to in that way, who do we know that's referring to? The Father. Now, if someone wants to say that only God is the Father, like a Jehovah Witness, according to this passage, what can we say back to them? Then Jesus is only Yahweh, because he's called the Lord. So either they're all Yahweh, they're all Lord, and they're all God, which we show in other scriptures, or only the Father is God and Jesus is Yahweh. Now you've got what the, what the Mormons basically teach, is that there's a difference between Yahweh and Elohim, which is another one of their silly interpretations of the Bible. So Jesus is Yahweh, because he's called Lord so many times, and then God is Elohim, and they're two separate gods. But that is not what's going on. Certain names belong to, uh, are given to all of them, but in certain, uh, by like Paul's writings, he uses them, well, I don't want to say generically, but he uses them, um, he takes the generic term, which could be generically for all God, and he uses them specifically for the person. So God is always, most of the time, I shouldn't say always, but for Paul, referring to the Father, and most of the time, the general name of Lord referring to the Son. And he generally just calls the Spirit, the Spirit of the Spirit of God. But you see right there, the, that the Spirit has gifts, the administrations come from the Lord, and the operations from the Father, just like he started off his, his letter. And then he'll end. Like if you look at the end, and I know we got to get closing out here, most of the Gospels end, with the, uh, most of the epistles rather, end with a declaration of who God is. And then he says uh, right here, greet everybody with a holy kiss, he says, if anyone love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let anathema be on him. Maranatha, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. So I wanted to see a little bit more there, but the Father and the Spirit were mentioned. I kind of went off that. Maybe it's 2 Corinthians. Let's just go to 2 Corinthians. You guys can start opening up your, your programs there. Which one is it, 2 Corinthians? Yeah, here we go. Sorry, 2 Corinthians. It ends. Farewell, uh, finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints salute you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the Father, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all.
Amen. And everybody said, Amen. Father, help us to always do this as you've called us to, to study, to know you, and to interact with you according to the scriptures in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen.